Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's quite a surprise that I'm back on the air, and to a degree it was probably least expected, but you know what? I have time, and because I have time, I'm going to uh, take advantage of it and uh, discuss another uh, podcast episode to the book that we're discussing, Signing Their Rights Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the United States Constitution, by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes. So, we talked yesterday about New Hampshire. Which state do you think we'll decide to discuss next? Will it be California? Will it be Texas or Massachusetts? Well, if I'm not mistaken, um, California and Texas were not states in 1787. Matter of fact, California and Texas were owned by um, the Spanish, or rather, I should say, by Mexico. So, the Pacific Coast really is still a whole other world, although it has been explored, but at the same time, our focus is on what lies at stake, and that is establishing a government that, perhaps over time, will be able to acquire land further west to where eventually new states will be admitted into the Union within a matter of uh, time, but of course that's a far, um, what do you call it, that's a far uh, reaching goal right now at this time. The the more important thing that our um, delegates who are in Philadelphia right now are trying to achieve is to uh, replace the existing government, being that fledgling Articles of Confederation, with something much better. So the answer, so the answer to the question as to what state we're going to be discussing about, is none other than Massachusetts. After all, Massachusetts was one of the thirteen original colonies. So why else? Why should we be discussing a state that's not even a part of the uh, thirteen colonies or thirteen states at this time? Foolish, but it's good to be reminded because. Um, You know, yes, there are 50 states in the United States, but at one time, there was no such thing as 50 states. You know, we had to start out somewhere, and by starting out with 13, well, that's a good start. So, before we discuss the uh, Massachusetts delegation that was present in Philadelphia, I'm going to start off with the lead bonus question for you all. Did the Constitutional Convention comprise both committees and subcommittees. You know, yes, there were uh, delegates there from from a handful of the states, and yes, they discussed matters, but I, I believe it would be fair to say that people just didn't randomly come up with these ideas. They had to uh, be a part of a larger group, and not everybody was in the same group. So, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, the Constitutional Convention was comprised of committees, meaning the primary groups and the subcommittees being the secondary groups. What kind of uh, committees would, ha- would there have been? Well, there was a rules committee, and there is a rules committee even in Congress today. The rules committee in 1787 in Philadelphia established guidelines for governing the entire convention. Well, you got to have some structure 
So if you don't have structure, then how can you have a rules committee? Then you had what was called the Committee of the Whole, which allowed delegates to debate topics off the record. And then you had um, another unique committee was what was called the Committees of Eleven, which comprised one member from each state. The Committee of Eleven took on various issues that arose at any given notice. So it's probably fair to say that the Committee of Eleven, or Committees of Eleven, could have been subcommittees, but that's not to say that committees of 11 could have been um, head committees as well. But hey, if you've got 11 men on a committee that um, oversees um, preparations for building a better defense system in terms of maintaining an army, maintaining a navy, to having um, ships of war ready to go at a moment's notice to defend our um or uh, coastal towns or, or uh, seaport villages. So yes, you want to have men who have knowledge of what it's like to uh, command a vessel or even to own a fleet of vessels like John Langdon of New Hampshire, whom we discussed yesterday. So our first uh, question with Massachusetts is the following. Uh, how many delegates from Massachusetts attended the Constitutional Convention? Was it, was it more than five, or was it less than three? The answer is less than three. Uh, there were two men from Massachusetts that uh, came to the uh, Constitutional uh, Convention. And just like New Hampshire, which, had, which produced two delegates, uh, the two men that we'll be discussing from Massachusetts contributed in significant ways. And as I must remind you all again, not everyone has to be like James Madison. Not everyone has to be like Benjamin Franklin, but just because you're not Benjamin Franklin, it doesn't mean that your voice isn't recognized. It doesn't mean that your voice has meaning. It doesn't mean that you don't have the uh, capability to come up with unique solutions. No matter how big or small these men's statures are in terms of their significance, they are making history and they would be happy to know, even in these times of uncertainty, 233 years later, that the United States Constitution is still in existence. Even through the darkest of times, like what we saw from January 6th, our um, forefathers would still be happy to know that, that the document they came up with, while it wasn't perfect, it, it was the best they could come up with, and it's still... Is um, in function. It still is in operation. It's still been functioning, so there is something um, good that can be um, taken out of taken out from all of this. So our uh, first delegate from Massachusetts that we will be uh, learning about, his name is Nathaniel Gorham. Anybody want to know how to spell his last name? It's not G O R E, like you know Gore, like you know. Like, for example, like when you witness a bullfight, or especially like the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, you know, you hear stories of bulls goring people who think they're smart enough to outrun a bull, but when they're really not, that kind of goring is spelled G-O-R-I-N-G. Or if one got gored by a bull, 
it would be G-O-R-E-D, but as for Nathaniel Gorham, his last name is spelled G-O-R-H-A-M. Well, what do we know that's uh, basic 101 information on Mr. Gorham? He, was he born... Um, was he born in the 1730s or in the 1740s? He was born in the 1730s. He was born on May 27th of 1738. That means he is three years younger than John Adams and Paul Revere, whom hailed from Massachusetts. He is six years younger than George Washington. Of course, George Washington is from Virginia, but if that gives you any indication of uh, timeline, for uh, age differences between some of these prominent men, that should uh, tell you something right there. Um, ironically, Nathaniel Gorham is a year younger than John Hancock. He lived in Charlestown, Massachusetts, which is just on the outskirts of Boston. As a child, he was um, the son of a captain, or rather I should say he lived in Charlestown, Massachusetts as a child. He was the son of a captain whom operated, uh, whom operated uh, packet boats that were used primarily for delivering mail. At age 15, which would, where he would have been, um, let's see, in 1753, he would have been around the age of 15, uh, Nathaniel Gorham apprenticed as a merchant in New London, Connecticut. So when he's, you know, we hear that word a lot, apprenticeship. That's like another word, another term for internship. But of course, they didn't call it internships in the 18th century. They, you would have been uh, referred to as an apprentice. Or in other words, you uh, would have been apprenticed to someone um, who is a, um, crafts, who is a um, chief craftsman at their job, like whether it's being a silversmith or a blacksmith. Uh, the bottom line is, is like if you're studying to, to learn a trade, like being a silversmith or a blacksmith, you are going to apprentice under someone who has lots of expertise to where they are considered a uh, true uh, marksman in their uh, craft. So by the end of the 1750s, uh, Nathaniel Gorham, uh, by the, around the time he is of age 21, he returns to Charlestown by setting up his own shop. And what I mean by shop, folks is uh, how about a mercantile firm? So it's probably fair to say that he is involved in the shipping industry. After all, his father um, operated uh, packet boats. So if his father is doing has been doing that kind of work, it's fair to say that Nathaniel Gorham, uh, he may not be operating a packet boat business, but Nathaniel Gorham will have plenty of connections as a result of running his own mercantile firm with vessels coming in and out of New England harbors, um, importing and exporting goods. By, the, by age 25, Gorham marries a fellow woman by the name of Rebecca Call, and together they had nine children. It's a lot of children, but let's keep in mind this, folks, that in those days, in, in colonial America, it was very common for families to have ten children with the hopes that if five didn't make it to adulthood, your hopes were that um, five would. I'm currently reading a, a book about Samuel Adams, who is a um, prominent uh, statesman during the American Revolution. He's often been um, a forgotten uh, founding father 
He has often been overshadowed by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and his second cousin, John Adams. But long story short, Samuel Adams was one of 12 children. Sadly, he was only one of three, he was only one of three out of all 12 siblings that made it past the age of three. So if that tells you something right there, just how um, unexpected life expectancy was in those days and from what I've learned so far in this book on Samuel Adams, that it was very common for children to be baptized days after, their, after they were born because families didn't know just how long their child would live. And if a child made it past the age of 10, he or she was considered to be an adult. So it does make practical sense why the Gorhams had as many children as they did with the hopes that if some of them didn't live to adulthood, they would have a decent number that um, did the opposite. In what year did Nathaniel Gorham go about entering politics? All right, well, I'll give you some choices here. Did he go about entering politics before 1770? Or was it after 1770? The answer is um, after 1770. He um, first um, entered politics around 1771, uh, one year after the uh, infamous Boston Massacre had taken place. He started out as a public notary. I'm sure many of you all have heard of the term, you know, of uh, notarizing a document. In other words, a notary needs to be present to uh, witness um, the signing of, of uh, two parties signing to an agreement so this way there can be there can be um, prevention of uh, liabilities or they there can be a prevention of any kind of um, false accusations but basically a public notary is an official who serves the public as an impartial witness and what, I, what do I mean by impartial, folks? He or she is not taking one side. It's kind of like the same uh, term as um, voir dire, which is used in our um, justice system, the process of selecting an impartial jury. In other words, the jury's going to be, um, what do you call it, be 50-50 on both sides. They're not going to favor one side over the other. In other words, they're, they're not, they're, they're not going to say, well, I'm going to favor the prosecution the majority of the time and, and just leave the defense hanging. For a public notary, he or she, and of course in, this, in 1771, um, a pope, a, for someone to be a public notary, it would have been that of a man. Um, but a public notary is um, an official who is supervising or who is serving the public as an impartial witness and performing various fraud deterrent acts pertaining to signatures of important documents. Okay, well, you know, fraud, you know, doing uh, something that's illegal, um, running a scheme that, um, that in some cases, uh, you know, people lose their money. They get swindled by a con artist. So, basically, Nathaniel Gorham being a public notary, his position as a, as a public notary, he is making sure that um, all acts of, um, of fraud do not happen. He also served as a member of the Massachusetts General Court, and we're not talking um, 
like going to court, they also referred to it as the legislative body at this time from 1771 to 1775. Now, in between those years, most notably in 1774, Nathaniel Gorham, that year of 1774 saw Gorham become a member of the rebel legislature, or what was known as the Provincial Congress. Does anybody know what provincial means? It's another word for interim. It's not the actual head governing body, but it's a makeshift governing body until a permanent one comes into place. And ironically, 1774, as many of you all heard me say before, I'll say it again, that's also the same year that Parliament passes those infamous coercive, or aka intolerable, acts which closed the port of Boston, relocated it to Salem, and basically said that anyone who commits a crime in the 13 colonies, regardless of where they live, even though it was geared towards Massachusetts, those individuals uh, would not be tried in their home states, but they would be uh, deported to England to be tried for those offenses and, and what do you know, never to be heard from again. So Nathaniel Gorham, along with the other members of this provincial congress, which would have included you know, like Samuel Adams, would have included uh, Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, uh, James Otis, to name a few uh, prominent uh, Massachusetts men. These figures would have, um, would have gone about overseeing the reforming of the state government, especially after the royal governor was officially ousted. And if I'm not mistaken, I do believe the last royal governor in Massachusetts was Thomas Hutchinson. So between 1778 and 1781, which are the last four years of the American Revolutionary War, Nathaniel Gorham is serving on the Board of War. What is this Board of War? It oversees the Continental Army's administration, being its officers, and George Washington, given that he is the head commander of the Continental Army, including all of its supplies and munitions. The Board of War uh, was an interesting uh, governing body, to say the least. I uh, had read some things about it through a book called Washington's Secret War, which had to do with the crisis at Valley Forge and whether or not the Army would even come out alive during its uh, darkest times from uh, the winter of 1777 to 1778. But there were members in, on the board of war, and thank heavens Nathaniel Gorham was not one of them, but there were members on that board who wanted George Washington out and went as far as uh, launching a plot uh, known as the Conway Cabal. And by the time it was discovered, thank heavens it was thwarted in enough time to where George Washington was no longer in any kind of uh, imminent danger from uh, not only losing his job, but perhaps having his legacy diminished because had, he, because had he been removed as commander of the Continental Army, I'm not so sure we would have been able to have defeated the mightiest empire in the world. That's just me, but sometimes it takes special leaders, even in the darkest of times, to lead their men to triumph. And even as Thomas Paine had said, the longer the conflict, the greater the end result will be. I believe that's what he said. In other words, victory just wasn't going to be handed to us. We had to earn it. And the longer we kept the enemy out on the battlefield, the longer the enemy was entrenched in that war, 
the harder it became for them to force their subjects to um, swear their full allegiance back to the crown. So prior to 1787, what distinctive title did Nathaniel Gorham hold? Does anybody want to take a guess? While serving as member of the Confederation Congress, Gorham became president in 1786, succeeding John Hancock. I'll tell you, there are a lot of things going on, most notably um, between 1786 and 1787. Yes, that might be a nice honor for Nathaniel Gorham, but is it as nice of an honor as it should be only to have rebellions be taking place left and right, not only in your own home state, like Massachusetts, but in other neighboring states? Probably not. So my next question to you all is the following. Did Shays' rebellion make Nathaniel Gorham support governmental reform? If anybody doesn't think so, then all I can say is something's not right. And perhaps I say that because uh, we had discussed uh, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle in a, from our last series. So the answer to the question is yes. Shays' Rebellion did make Nathaniel Gorham advocate um, additional governmental reforms. Gorham himself believed if the government was not improved upon, the greater the likelihood for more revolts to take place. So we've got to um, we've got to remove this uh, mindset in our mind in our minds, folks, that Shays's rebellion was just caused by a bunch of low class people who had nothing else better to do with their lives, and that and that's not true. Shays's rebellion. It wasn't started by Mr. Daniel Shays. Yes, he may have sold that sword that the Marquis de Lafayette gave him to pay off debts. And while, yes, there were those who saw it as traitorous, Daniel Shays was, he was trying to do the best he could to survive. Of course, I know some people would say, why accept the sword when you knew you were in debt? Well, we can't legislate his thinking. But what we do know is that the government of Massachusetts was looking for someone to blame, and they decided to pin all that blame on a former Revolutionary War officer who, in their eyes, had done something that was treasonous, and that was to sell a sword that was given to him by none other than Mr. Marquis de Lafayette, or rather General Marquis de Lafayette. But we also must remember, too, that Shays' Rebellion was a rebellion that involved prominent families along the western Massachusetts frontier who were rather educated people, but the problem was that their voices were not being heard by the governing elite from the east, being none other than the, than the people from Boston, as well as from the mercantile towns on the outskirts of Boston, who pretty much ran the state's affairs. But yes, Nathaniel Gorham did firmly believe that if governmental reforms in the aftermath of Shays' rebellion did not change in the near foreseeable future, the greater the likelihood that more revolts would happen to where the United States might, not, might no longer exist, a.k.a. anarchy. So yes, he's not the only one who has this fear, folks.
It's a reality. I think it's fair to say that it was a reality for the majority, if not the majority for all of these men who are in attendance in Philadelphia. While in Philadelphia proposing a new governing document, what accomplishments did Gorham himself achieve? Anybody want to take a guess? I was very surprised to learn of his accomplishments when I first read Signing Their Rights Away. He proposed a six-year term limit for senators. And what do you know? What do you know? For U.S. senators, their term, they serve six-year terms. So we have Nathaniel Gorham to thank for that proposal. He also voted down a proposal um, that was, uh, inst that was uh, initiated by Governor Morris. Governor Morris truly believed that the only people who had the right to vote were property owners. And I'm not talking property owners with like 30 acres of land, folks. I'm talking about men who have well over 200 acres of land. In, some, in, in certain cases, how about 500 acres or more? Perhaps for Governor Morris, he believed that men who had great swaths of land perhaps had far more to offer than someone who's, who only has 25 acres of land. And it's not just the acreage of land, but perhaps the level of education that might go along with it. And speaking of uh, the education piece, that will be something that I will get to in another podcast involving another one of our uh, signers of the Constitution who... Um, whose uh, views would uh, conflict with another um, prominent forefather who was not present in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, but their political ideologies would uh, clash with one another so bad to where um, they just couldn't stand to be around each other. Another unique proposal for Nathaniel Gorham that um, obviously it's changed tremendously since the time it was uh, put in into play in 1787, but what's ironic about this one was that on the last day of the convention, Gorham proposed an increase in the number of representatives in the House to one for every 30,000 citizens instead of 40,000. I can't imagine what the number is like now, but I would say it's well above 30,000 easily. So, what's unique about February 6th of 1788? Massachusetts became the sixth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Gorham played a big part in ensuring, state, in ensuring that the state ratified the document. And, it, and like New Hampshire, Massachusetts's vote was very, very close. And for those of you who were with me on Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle, a majority of the delegates from the western part of the state were against the Constitution. But as I said before, and I could say it again, you can't please everybody. And while it may not be the most perfect of documents, it was the best that the men from Philadelphia were able to come up with. But nonetheless, Massachusetts um, votes to uh, ratify the Constitution on February the 6th of 1788, making it the sixth state to do so. Eight years later, in 1796, Nathaniel Gorham sadly passed away at the age of 58. 58 today seems young, but in that day and time, it was probably fair to say that it was considered old age. He is buried in Charlestown, which is a Boston neighborhood, 
It's also home to the end of the, of the Freedom Trail, Bunker Hill, which was the uh, famous battle that was fought back on June 17th of 1775. And then there is a famous warship. Anybody heard of the USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides? That ship is still there. It turns out that Paul Revere, in the post-Revolutionary War era, was, was the first to develop a uh, mass uh, copper uh, production assembly. And it turns out that uh, Revere himself um, designed the copper floor for the ship. In other words, you know, the ships, uh, the bottom of the ship being built uh, with copper fitting, we have Paul Revere to thank. Well, nonetheless, folks, so just remember when senators uh, serve six-year terms or when their six-year term is up and he or she is facing re-election, who do you have to thank? Nathaniel Gorham. If it weren't for him on that proposal, I'm not sure who would have thought of uh, how many uh, years a senator's term would last before he or she um, was up for re-election. All right, who's our second um, delegate from Massachusetts we're going to be discussing? His name is Rufus King. What do we know about Rufus King? He was born on March 24th, 1755 in Scarborough, Massachusetts. Now, I know there's not a Scarborough, Massachusetts today, but let's keep this in mind, folks. What state was part of Massachusetts when Rufus King was born? Was it Vermont or was it Maine? The answer is Maine. Maine was part of Massachusetts, folks. So Rufus King was born in Scarborough, Massachusetts, now formerly known as Scarborough, Maine. And if any of you all want to know where Scarborough, Maine is located, it's just south of Portland. As a matter of fact, it's not too terribly far from the Maine, New Hampshire line. You have to, um, you have to go through York and uh, Kittery and Wells and Ogunquit to before getting to uh, uh, to Scarborough, as well as uh, Sacco and um, Biddeford. But uh, for Rufus King, uh, what I find, uh, what I, I mean, I found a lot of things interesting about him. It turns out that um, he was the son of a wealthy merchant whose loyalties were to king and country, which included his father was also a staunch supporter of the Stamp Act. I don't know of how many people were actually in favor of this Stamp Act, but if there were those who favored the Stamp Act, what do you think would have, what do you think would have uh, done the men? How about being tarred and feathered? It was bad enough for patriots to be against loyalists, all because they were loyal to the crown. But if they did things that just irked the opposition, being the patriots, the patriots would find it okay to tar and feather their loyalist brethren. But, but, tarring and feathering wasn't confined to the loyalists. The loyalists did it right back to the patriots as well. All in the name of loyalties. Loyalties may be good, folks, but loyalties are dangerous, especially when it comes to taking matters into your own hands. So for Rufus King, uh, does he follow his father's footsteps by being a loyalist himself? Well, 
let's be reminded of the fact, folks, that uh, during this time, just because one was a patriot, it didn't mean the rest of the family was patriot. Just because one was a loyalist, it didn't mean that maybe everybody else was loyal to king and country. Rufus King is the exact opposite of his father. Rufus keeps his loyalties on the patriot side. Kudos to him. He studies law at Harvard before serving in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. But prior to 1787, Rufus King opposed reforming the Articles of Confederation. Why did he oppose reforming? It turns out that uh, Rufus King was a uh, member to the Confederation Congress, and ironically, a majority of uh, men or leaders from Massachusetts were in favor of a uh, convention that uh, Governor James Bowden in 1785 had proposed where all of the uh, states would come together. It was shot down by the three uh, delegates representing Massachusetts from the Confederation Congress, and Rufus King was one of them. It's not that Rufus King didn't care. His biggest worry was, okay, if we're going to reform the Articles of Confederation, what measures are we going to be reforming? And if we, repl and if we replace it, who's to say that this government might still be around, that is the new government, a year from now? You know, I could see how many were skeptical, but all of that changes in the aftermath of Shays's Rebellion. I think a lot of things changed in the minds of those who really weren't sure whether the Articles of Confederation needed any reform prior to 1786. Well, once Shays's Rebellion happens, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And for Rufus King, he knows that there's no going back. He knows that there has to be something better so that rebellions themselves do not become the norm for society. So while in Philadelphia, does anybody want to take a guess? What issue did Rufus King speak out in opposition against? I can give you some choices. Did he speak out in opposition against um, representation? Or did he speak out in opposition against slavery? The answer is slavery. You know, even up north in states like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, there is slavery still at this time, but it's not at the same level like it is in South Carolina or Virginia or Georgia. Many of the uh, northern states are really in the process now of abolishing slavery. But that's not so for the South, especially when you consider the, the populations of Virginia, you consider the populations in the Carolinas and Georgia, and, you, and it's not just the populations, but think about the economies of the South tobacco, rice, cotton. Cotton may not be the king crop just yet. It's going to be about another six years before cotton really becomes the revolutionary crop. And the reason I say that is because prior to 1793, there is no such thing as a cotton gin. Who invents the cotton gin? Not a southerner, but a man from up north named Eli Whitney. So, I guess I could say it's revolutionary in a way to think that a northerner is inventing an agricultural um, machine that will 
that won't benefit his people, but benefit people further south. Well, for one, um, not everybody can grow cotton, and two, cotton is not a product you can grow up north. It has to be in warm uh, tropical climates. So anyways, uh, Rufus King does speak out against slavery, and the reason, one of the reasons why he's, he's adamantly against slavery is because he's very fearful uh, of what of what will happen over time after this new government or new governing document gets established. He is very fearful of, of westward. He's not so much, fe he's not fearful of westward expansion. What he's fearful of is that once westward expansion takes place, there will be men in Congress who want slavery to expand as well. And there is a territory known as the Northwest Territory. That's the territory that encompasses the five states that we will come to know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. Rufus King is very worried that slavery will expand into those states. And if it does, it will jeopardize the balance between free and slave states. He also fears the advantages that the South had economically, based off of what I just mentioned earlier, and while he has every right to fear these things, he also has to be uh, realistic about what's uh, in front of him. In other words, okay, he can speak out against slavery all he wants, but if he's going to get anything accomplished, he's going to have to compromise, not just with people from up north. He's going to have to compromise with people down south. If these men didn't compromise, even on sensitive issues, I don't know how we would have even been able to have walked away establishing a new governing document that is still intact 233 years, although many changes have been made. And yes, perhaps some of those changes have been for the better. Yes, some of those changes maybe have not been for the better, but... That's just me, and, you know, I'm not the Constitution, but what I do know is that while the Constitution may have been written in 1787, we can still appreciate the fact that it is our governing document. We can still appreciate the fact that we can debate it, but we should also be able to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. Don't you think many, many in Congress could learn from that as well? We would hope, but... Those who can learn how to disagree without being disagreeable in Congress are in an elite minority. So Rufus King goes about compromising for political purposes. Hey, you can't blame the man for at least speaking out in opposition, but at least he, kno but at least he knows that he has to have some boundaries as well on what's appropriate and not appropriate to do. After all, everyone is being watched from within, now, did Rufus King favor a stronger or a weaker central government? He favored a strong government, considering the Articles of Confederation gave no proper commands for military defenses. Well, you know, if, if the Articles of Confederation didn't uh, go about maintaining a proper army or maintaining a well-established um, navy or even giving any guidelines for how the country was to prepare itself in a time of war then yes, you need a stronger uh, central government that can expand upon those powers. If not, 
then there's no structure at all. What I also found interesting about Rufus King was that just before 1787 and 1786, he married a woman who wasn't even 20 years old. She was about 15 or 16 years old. Now, I know that sounds very uh, bizarre, considering there's a 15-year age difference, but we must remember that... Um, that times were much different back then, but um, but the woman that uh, Rufus King married, her name is Mary Alsop, or Alsop. She was a well-to-do New York socialite, so she obviously came from a very well-to-do family. We might even think of her perhaps as a young debutante in this day and time. So by marrying into by marrying a New York socialite. This pretty much means that Rufus King was able to have people um, below him manage his business and mercantile affairs for the remainder of his life. Yes, he could tend to his affairs, but wherever he went, where he was not, where it didn't involve work-related, he's got people below him who can take care of take care of his um, affairs at any given time. Who persuaded uh, Rufus King to move to New York? So in other words, folks, he didn't stay in Massachusetts the rest of his life. But someone persuaded him. Let me ask you this. Was it, uh, was it Alexander Hamilton? Was it Daniel Tompkins or DeWitt Clinton? The answer is Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton persuaded um, Rufus King to move to New York, where his political stock rose greatly. He was a member of the Federalist Party. Remember, folks, the Federalists were the ones who favored the strong central government, whereas their counterparts, the Anti-Federalists, favored a, a weaker central government. And we'll try to talk a little bit more about uh, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists down the road, especially when we get to um, talking about New York and um, and so forth, because that will be of uh, relevant importance. But um, but as for Rufus King, he does serve as a senator from New York, a U.S. senator, that is. And in 1816, he ran for the presidency and lost to James Monroe. And what makes this unique is that he would become the last Federalist candidate to run for the presidency, considering four years later in 1820, the party itself virtually um, no longer existed. It died out. So let's keep in mind, folks, that Republicans and Democrats haven't been around forever. There were other political parties that uh, came about um, before these uh, two modern-day parties did, and even during the times when they were first in existence. Some other unique things about Rufus King is that he served as ambassador to Great Britain twice, from 1796 to 1803. That means he would have been ambassador his first go-around when George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson all were, in the, all were uh, serving as president of the United States. And then from 1825 to 1826, um, I'm going to assume that Rufus King would have been there when uh, James Monroe was finishing up his presidency. And if that wasn't the case, it would have been under John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams. And ironically, in 1820, Rufus King was still alive to see um, the Missouri Compromise take place where Missouri became a slave state. 
uh, Rufus King was still speaking out in adamant opposition to the um, practice of slavery. But it turns out that when Maine was admitted to the Union as a free state, meaning that it was no longer part of Massachusetts, Rufus's brother, William King, became Maine's first governor. So what do you know? He still had family living in Maine, in what we now know as Maine, even though for a long time it was considered Massachusetts, but uh, Rufus's brother uh, became Maine's first governor. Well, Rufus King uh, died on April the 29th of 1827. He lived to be 72 years old, which was old age for that day and time, uh, to think that he lived... He outlived Thomas Jefferson and John Adams by one year. You know, both of those men died on the 4th of July, 1826, hours apart. And his estate, King Manor, located in Queens, New York, is open to the public. Well, you know, Massachusetts sure saw a lot um, in the post-Revolutionary War era. But thank heavens, she had a lot of good leaders even though many of them did have their ties to Boston with the mercantile industry and being a part of the uh, Bostonian elite, it is good to know that uh, there were men in Massachusetts in the Boston area who, uh, who knew that governmental reform needed to take place, who knew that, um, that if it didn't take place when it had to have been done so, that the, that the country itself would have fallen into a into even further great despair or let alone anarchy. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight and I look forward to being back on the air again at some point. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I will be on assignment here soon. So hopefully I will try to be in touch at some point here soon. But uh, for those of you who live in the United States, um, have a great uh, upcoming uh, 4th of July holiday. Be safe. And uh, for those of you in the rest of the world uh, who have whom are listening, uh, be safe as well. And thank you again, as always, for listening. You guys are the best and continue to keep up the good work by listening to uh, my podcast sessions. And again, if you know of people who are interested, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and stay safe.